Hi, everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and in this, the 24th session of our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we're going to cover Chapter 11 of The Fellowship of the Ring, in which we set out from Bree and venture east, noting lights in the sky above Weathertop, and finally encountering the Black Riders uncloaked. You can interact live here in the YouTube chat on this beautiful Thursday afternoon, or you can take part on Twitter using the hashtag TABAGAIN, that is T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N, and I'll be able to see all of your discussions as we move forward. This is a big one. This is not just one of the turning points in the early books of The Lord of the Rings, but is one of the most significant turning points in Frodo's life. This is going to define the shape of much of his journey and his eventual destination going forward. So we're going to pay close attention as we move through this chapter, which is why we're only covering chapter 11. It's a relatively short chapter, and it engages in some interesting narrative diversions, particularly in its first third. There's a ton to discuss, so let's get to it. Hello to Jackie and to Becca and to Amanda and to Princess Ostrich and to Gildart's Winters and to everyone here in the YouTube chat. It feels like a long time since I've done one of these, which I know isn't true, and yet, still, here we are, 24 sessions in and still a long road ahead of us. Let's begin, then, by taking a quick look at the... uh, at the map of uh, Eriador, which we discussed last time, just to keep track of where we are. You will see here to the east of the Old Forest, Bree, this is where we begin our journey, and then north, the Chetwood and the Midgewater, the Weather Hills running down here to the southern tip of that small range weather top, Amon Sul itself, one of the most important strategic locations in the Old Kingdom of Arnor. That is where our journey is going to take us. And when we think of Aragorn's words about the journey to Rivendell toward the end of this chapter, we can see just how much distance there is still left to cover. We are perhaps, what can we say, charitably halfway from Hobbiton to Rivendell here, but there's a long road ahead before we reach, uh, before we reach the last bridge, excuse me, and then press onward to the Ford of Bruinen. We will cover all of that next week. Minor spoilers, I suppose, though I think that you can anticipate that movement in the story. And as Princess Ostrich says here in the YouTube chat, we are just leaving the safe space. This is it. Aragorn will mention in the span of this chapter the Forsaken Inn, pretty much the last inn on the road east. And it's a day's march east of Bree. We're not going to go there. We're not going to spend any time. And it's unclear from the title whether or not the Forsaken Inn is even still standing. Has it been truly forsaken? Is it now an empty shell of a building caused by the retreat of human civilization from this land following the decline of the kingdom of Arnor? Or is it forsaken in a more playful sense? Is it forsaken simply by virtue of its distance from the civilized lands? We'll see. Gildart says, this is where we venture into danger. Yes, very well put. Very well put. And Heroes and Bard says, the history of Weathertop is fascinating. That it absolutely is. We're not going to have a lot of time to delve too deeply into that. And there will be events which take place at Weathertop, which we will not revisit for a few weeks, because we'll wait until we get to chapter two of the second book of the Fellowship of the Rings, the uh, Council of Elrond, before we really understand all that has happened at Weathertop in the span of this period of history. So let's begin then by, well, taking one of those aforementioned narrative diversions, a narrative detour here, because we begin this chapter in a way that is unlike pretty much any other chapter in The Lord of the Rings. We begin with uh, a move back, a shift in the narrative away from any of our primary characters, all the way back 
to Buckland. As they prepared for sleep in the inn at Bree, darkness lay on Buckland. A mist strayed in the dells and along the riverbank. The house at Crick Hollow stood silent. Fatty Bulger opened the door cautiously and peered out. A feeling of fear had been growing on him all day, and he was unable to rest or go to bed. There was a brooding threat in the breathless night air. As he stared out into the gloom, a black shadow moved under the trees. The gate seemed to open of its own accord and close again without a sound. Terror seized him. He shrank back, and for a moment he stood trembling in the hall. Then he shut and locked the door. The night deepened. There came the soft sound of horses led with stealth along the lane. Outside the gate they stopped, and three black figures entered, like shades of night creeping across the ground. One went to the door, one to the corner of the house on either side, and there they stood, as still in the shadows as, as still as the shadows of stones, while night went slowly on. The house and the quiet trees seemed to be waiting breathlessly. There was a faint stir in the leaves, and a cock crowed far away. The cold hour before dawn was passing. The figure by the door moved. In the dark without moon or stars, a drawn blade gleamed as if a chill light had been unsheathed. There was a blow, soft but heavy, and the door shuddered. Open in the name of Mordor, said a voice, thin and menacing. So we cut back to Crick Hollow, and let's take a moment to understand exactly what is happening here. A doom has been rising in Fatty Bulger all day. And we should note, interestingly, that today, as Frodo and his companions fall asleep in the Prancing Pony in Bree, and as we are told, Fatty Bulger looks out at the shadow moving beneath the trees, it is the evening of the 29th of September. On the morning the hobbits departed from Crick Hollow, which was September the 25th, Mary said that the riders could be there today, if not stopped at the North Gate. Why has it taken the Black Riders four days to make it as far as Crick Hollow? Were they stopped at the North Gate? Well, that seems unlikely. Indeed, when the idea that they could be stopped at the North Gate is presented, it seems more more as a joke, more as a wry observation about the uh, defensive capabilities of hobbits than anything else. Rather, it seems as though the Black Riders have been marshalling their forces because they are here in number. They are here with power. That timeline detail is going to be more relevant as we move forward. Again, by the time we get to the Council of Elrond, we will be in a position where we can look back on these events and better understand all that is occurring with the Black Riders. But now we know that days have passed, and Tolkien does acknowledge this a little in some of his letters as he's describing the events that are taking place outside of the frame of the narrative, but alongside the narrative. He tells us in letters that the Riders were delayed. They are in disarray because they know now that the Ringbearer is fleeing, has fled the Shire, and they don't know Buckland at all. So their forces have been spread out and diminished all along the road as far as Weathertop. It is only when one of the riders identifies Crick Hollow that they marshal their forces and move to attack. There are a couple of fascinating incidental details here too. The shadow moving beneath the trees, is that a black rider? It may be. It may also be Fatty Bulger's Well, I don't want to say imagination, because imagination suggests that he's making the whole thing up, and he clearly isn't, but it could be Fatty Bulger's intuition. Does the gate open and close of its own free will, or is it simply moving by weight? It's not being blown by the breeze, because we know that this is a breathless night without moon or stars. We also then have the unsheathing of the blade, the chill light that has been unsheathed, despite the fact that the night is as dark as pitch. This is an ominous arrival, and nothing good is going to come of it. 
We also here get the detail of the cock crowing. Um, there was a faint stir in the leaves and a cock crowed far away. The cold hour before dawn was passing. Traditionally, in fairy stories, the crowing of the cock advents the, the arrival of the sun. It is the end of the night that is being marked here, indicated by the cold hour before dawn, the darkest hour, of course, coming before the dawn. But here, the Black Riders are not are not necessarily bound to the night. We know that they can move through daylight. We've observed that happening before, but we also know that they are more powerful in the night. This last cold, darkest hour may be the most powerful for the Black Riders, particularly within the frame of the Shire, where they are being somewhat limited, somewhat oppressed by the well, whatever native magic there is within the Shire, the the native magic of community and civility that seems somehow to thwart them. Certainly, when we meet them at the end of this chapter, on the the peak of Weathertop, they are going to be very different indeed. It's not going to feel as though we're confronting the same foe, the same threat. That is not to say that they are not dangerous. Now, here's the question. Is this true? Is this real? Is this actually happening right now? Let's move forward to the next slide, to the end of this account, and then we'll see our transition back to Bree. The black figures fled from the house. One of them let fall a hobbit cloak on the step as he ran. In the lane, the noise of hoofs broke out, and gathering to a gallop went hammering away into the darkness. All about Crick Hollow, there was the sound of horns blowing and voices crying and feet running, but the black riders rode like a gale to the north gate. Let the little people blow. Sauron would deal with them later. Meanwhile, they had another errand. They knew now that the house was empty and the ring had gone. They rode down the guards at the gate and vanished from the shire. In the early night, Frodo woke from deep sleep suddenly as if some sound or presence had disturbed him. He saw that Strider was sitting alert in his chair. His eyes gleamed in the light of the fire which had been tended and was burning brightly, but he made no sign or movement. Or movement excuse me. Frodo soon went to sleep again, but his dreams were again troubled with the noise of wind and of galloping hooves. The wind seemed to be curling around the house and shaking it, and far off he heard a horn blowing wildly. He opened his eyes and heard a cock crowing lustily in the inyard. Strider had drawn the curtains and pushed back the shutters with a clang. The first grey light of day was in the room and a cold air was coming through the open window. So what do we learn here? Well, we learn that Frodo has been dreaming. We learn that his has been a restless sleep. And crucially, we learn that he his, his dreams were again troubled with the noise of wind and of galloping hooves. The wind seemed to be curling around the house and shaking it, and far off he heard a horn blowing wildly. I mean, he didn't hear a horn blowing wildly. It is inconceivable that here in Bree he could hear the horns of Buckland. It seems as though the first part of this account, everything that happens at Crick Hollow, is Frodo's dream. Now, that doesn't mean that it's untrue. It doesn't mean that he is making this up or that he is imagining the the rampant terror of Fatty Bolger as he flees north from Crick Hollow and casts himself into the arms of his neighbors, protesting that he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. But that also doesn't mean that this is a literal account. We can't be entirely sure whether the Black Riders are pushing into Crick Hollow right now or whether this has happened before or Frodo is somehow imagining all of this. We note, too, that we get interiority from the Black Riders for the first time. Let the little people blow. Sauron would deal with them later. They rode down the guards at the gate and vanished from the Shire. They rode down the guards at the gate, of course, confirming our suspicion that the North Gate would not hold against the Black Riders for long. 
But would they really say, let the little people blow? Sauron would deal with them later? In whose voice are we hearing those lines? Is that really coming to us from the Black Riders? Or is that coming to us from Frodo's troubled and restless sleep, even as he's being watched over by Strider himself? The Horn of Buckland is special, okay, says Princess Ostrich, and Diane pulls out here, is this, is this his innate clairvoyance or the ring? Well, it could be both. It could be the ring connecting him to the Black Riders. We know that the Riders can sense the ring, though we don't know entirely how astute they are in that regard, particularly within the bounds of the Shire. Again, by the time we get to the Council of Elrond, we'll have a different perspective on this. Um... Alan says Frodo woke from a deep sleep of uh, excuse me Frodo woke from a deep sleep at the moment they attacked Crick Hollow reminds me of Obi-Wan feeling the destruction of Alderaan in Star Wars that's a really nice pull yes a great disturbance in the force that may well be the case <laughs> as Johnny says the force is strong with Frodo Yes. And Princess Ostrich says, I love the moment where the whole Shire just gets as worked up as hobbits can and the Black Riders have to flee. Well, it's interesting how we read that, isn't it? Do they flee from the sound of horns? Do they flee from whatever martial power Buckland can muster? Or do they flee because the ring is gone? I think it's much more the latter than the former. Their task is a simple one. And now that Frodo has departed, now that the ring specifically has departed the Shire, they have no further interest in it. But they also have no further interest in stealth, which suggests that their stealthy, somewhat diplomatic approach to finding Baggins of the Shire was intentional that this isn't just how they behave. This is not a native state for the Black Riders. Rather, they were trying to approach Frodo more carefully, knowing that if they rode through the North Gate on their way into the Shire, he may well be alerted and go to ground. They're trying to be somewhat inconspicuous, but not so inconspicuous that they won't flee from the Shire, depart the Shire with urgency. And again, we must be careful with Tolkien. Um, I'm trying to look here. Yes, we don't, we don't have the word flee here. Flee is a very important word for Tolkien because uh, it doesn't mean oftentimes what we take it to mean. To flee in the Anglo-Saxon sense does not mean to run away in fear. It means to fly. It is to, it is to, to move, simply to move with great haste and, and hurriedly. Um, but they don't flee. They vanish from the Shire. They vanish as though presumably they were never there. And Jackie Bowman says in the YouTube chat, lol, good luck being inconspicuous, Black Riders. Yeah, how's that working out for you, ominous Black Riders who move like shadows beneath the trees and stand stock still like the shadows of stones in the lee of Crick Hollow? Not working out great for you with your tiny, evil, gleaming blades. Pretty, pretty bad. Johnny says, I like to think that the Shire is supposed to be the anti-Mordor and they can't stand being there longer than they have to. I think that's a really good and powerful and trenchant observation, too. I think in a fundamental sense, it is fair to say that the Shire is the anti-Mordor, particularly in the sense that, that Mordor has fallen beneath the shadow. When we finally see Mordor, we're going to see a land devastated. We're going to see a land overtaken by the malicious, malignant presence of Sauron. Here, the Shire is, in a sense, antithetical to that. It is a place of life and of community and of civility, as we've said before. And the Black Riders, clearly, evidently, if we ever had any doubt that the Black Riders were somewhat diminished by their presence in the Shire, then that doubt is laid to rest by the time we reach the end of this chapter. Is fly the command form of flee, asks Alan, as in fly, you fools? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But it also means um, to, to flee is simply, yes, to, to move swiftly. It doesn't necessarily carry with it the notion of, of cowardice. 
It's not just about fear. It can also be a, a strategic retreat. When Gandalf commands the party to fly, you fools, indeed, he uses that exact same phrase or, or you know, variations on that phrase twice during the... I don't want to anticipate this too much, but during the battle at the bridge at Khazadum, uh, he uses that same injunction twice to urge them forward, not just to flee in the contemporary sense, but to move swiftly. Yes, good. Um, yeah, Jackie says, remembering to interpret Tolkien's use of words with their original definitions is hard work. It is as long as we don't put too much emphasis on the individual words. As long as we are still open to context and we're open to interpretation, then generally speaking, I mean, Tolkien was an exceptionally skilled writer. He was very, very good at this. So we generally get a broad enough sense from context that the individual archaic definitions aren't so important, but certainly there are moments, and I would argue Fly You Fools is one of them, That and we get a little tangential connection there too, where one of the arguments in support of Balrogs having wings within the frame of the Lord of the Rings lies in a description of them flying. And it doesn't mean flying, it means moving swiftly. They were fleeing in both senses of the word. We'll come back to that when we get to the bridge. Yes, good, all right. All of that is to say that Crick Hollow has come under attack or will come under attack, has previously come under attack, or is metaphorically under attack. I mean... We can't be sure, I think, that Frodo hasn't dreamed this entire affair. Certainly the transition back from this somewhat objective third-person voice to Frodo's immediate experience. We don't even get a scene break there. Let me call up the slide again and we can take a look at exactly how that transition works. Let the little people blow. Sauron would deal with them later. Meanwhile, they had another errand. They knew now the house was empty and the ring had gone. They rode down the guards at the gate and vanished from the Shire. In the early light, Frodo woke from deep sleep suddenly as if some sound or presence had disturbed him. These two things are clearly supposed to be continuous. We are clearly in Frodo's POV, and if that isn't clear enough by the way that transition is handled, Frodo soon went to sleep again, but his dreams were again troubled with the noise of wind and of galloping hooves. He was having this dream. We know that for sure. And the the rising of the wind is also fascinating because we are told it is a breathless night, then right before the Black Riders move toward the door of Crick Hollow and demand surrender in the name of Mordor, which also feels like an odd beat from the Black Riders, but there we are. That may be a little dramatic license from Frodo's perspective. We do get this reference to the leaves rustling. So the wind is rising, and of course, when we think of rising wind we may be reminded of the dwarves' poetry back from The Hobbit, the divine wind that arises in the west and sweeps across the land and reaches the lonely mountain and is then elevated. It rises up above the world. Sudden wind in The Lord of the Rings, in the frame of, of Tolkien's mythopoeic endeavor, can suggest the intrusion of some force for good, some some presence here in the world. So we may also see that here, the wind that is howling, the wind that is, is curling around the house and shaking it, that has arisen from this previously breathless night. This may not be an entirely natural wind here. Um, protagonist says Becca, with vivid nightmare dreams, seems to be a running theme. Yes, this is definitely one of those things where, uh, you know, uh, Seinfeld did it first. Here, <laughs> Tolkien kind of establishes this pattern and connects the idea of prophetic dreams, which, as I've said before, 
Tolkien throughout his life had what he took to be quasi-prophetic dreams, at least dreams of great significance, oftentimes about a drowned land, which he kind of folded into his own mythopoeic endeavor. Um, so he kind of took that real-life experience, dreams which feel portentous and significant, which feel like memories or visions of places and times far distant. He took that real-life experience and folded it into his creative endeavor here. The idea of a fantasy protagonist having somewhat prophetic dreams, particularly the idea of a fantasy protagonist having mechanically significant prophetic dreams that allow the author to break the frame of the, the protagonist's direct experience, Tolkien did kind of do that first. So we can't hold him or judge him too hard, uh, hold him responsible or judge him too harshly for that. Um, whether the unofficial main character of all high fantasy says Heroes of Mars. And I'm inclined to agree, in high fantasy, we take the pathetic fallacy one step further, wherein the weather, the natural world around us, isn't just responding to the action, isn't just exhibiting emotion, but is, in fact, active within that frame. That's, that's fascinating. That's a good catch. Good. Good. All right. Yes, and we're certainly, uh, yes, uh, dreams seem to come up a lot in our book clubs lately. Uh, of course, we're connecting back to, uh, to Shadow's dreams, his prophetic and metaphorical dreams in American Gods. Yes, that's a great observation. Uh, and Daniel says, right, but Frodo is pained in this. He knows he's going somewhere more dangerous, but it's still very difficult for him to leave them really in his place. Yes, yes. Frodo thinking of Fatty Bulger at the empty house in Crick Hollow is heartbreaking. Because again, we have to remember our discussion from last week. He is now more aware than ever, and he was not unaware previously, but he is more aware than ever of the burden that he has chosen to take up. And he is concerned about the consequence of that burden. Now they have met a new ally. Strider is here and he's going to help them, but he is also walking into the path of danger, walking toward certain doom, certain hopelessness. And we still have this sense from the hobbits, from the other hobbits, not from Frodo, crucially, that for all their talk of, of heroism and of undertaking this adventure and of not leaving Frodo to go alone, there is still a sense that this is going to be a hopeful endeavor. They haven't yet apprehended the magnitude of their quest. Yeah. Do any of the other hobbits have prophetic dreams, says Di. And Galadrabecki, I'm glad to see you, Galadrabecki, says, I think maybe Pippin does at some point. Uh, we're going to circle back around to dreams because by the time that we get to more direct and prophetic dreams, we're going to be in a very different uh, place, tonally speaking. We're going to be in a very different register by the time we get that point. And, and the hobbits in particular will have undergone a great deal. So we'll come back to that. Yeah. Good, good. And Butterbur is again, as Danielle says, like Fatty, staying behind almost as a lure in Frodo's place. Yeah, good, good. All right, let's keep moving on um, and get to the following morning where we learn that the ponies are gone. Mr. Butterbur hurried off to see their ponies were got ready and to fetch them a bite, but very soon he came back in dismay. The ponies had vanished. The stable doors had all been opened in the night and they were gone. Not only Mary's ponies, but every other horse and beast in the place. Frodo was crushed by the news. How could they hope to reach Rivendell on foot, pursued by mounted enemies? They might as well set out for the moon. Strider sat silent for a while, looking at the hobbits as if he was weighing up their strength and courage. Ponies will not help us to escape horsemen, he said at last, thoughtfully, as if he had guessed what Frodo had in mind. We should not go much slower on foot, not on the roads that I mean to take. I was going to walk in any case. It is the food and the stores that trouble me. We cannot count on getting anything to eat between here and Rivendell except what we take with us. And we ought to take plenty to spare, for we may be delayed or forced to go round about, far out of the direct way. How much are you prepared to carry on your backs? As much as we must, said Pippin with a sinking heart, and trying to show that he was tougher than he looked or felt. I can carry enough for two, 
said Sam, defiantly. Sam. Sam is the greatest. And here, as Pippin takes the heroic posture, Pippin says as much as we must, and he says so with certainty and with with definitivism. Pippin is ready for this, even though he doesn't feel necessarily terribly tough at this moment. But there's no trace of that from Sam. I can carry enough for two, said Sam, defiantly. So here we see the action of the agents of Sauron, not presumably the Black Riders themselves. I think we can cast a glance toward Bill Fernie and his associates here in The Prancing Pony. All of the ponies are gone, and Frodo's flight from Bree is now more difficult, still more difficult than it was. And he is delayed. Crucially, not only is he going to move more slowly along the eastern road toward Rivendell, but he is going to have to to wait until he can leave, until we can marshal proper resources. He needs to be able to carry this material on his pack, and that's tough. Heroes and Bard says, Pippin sounds so very young. And of course, these are the moments that remind us Pippin is very young. Pippin is just a kid. He's younger still than all the other hobbits. So that's, yes, as Jackie says, Pippin and his youthful need to prove himself. And I think crucially to to play his part. I, I think it's easy to read this as Pippin being somewhat less impressive and Sam being somewhat more impressive. Sam says it and he means it. And Pippin says it, and he doesn't really mean it. But crucially, Pippin still says it. And he says it to Strider. He says it to this figure who is enigmatic in the extreme, a figure who has already kind of established his heroic adventuring bona fides. But Pippin is ready to respond. He is ready to do what is necessary, even though he doesn't look or feel particularly tough right there. Kildarts Winter says, Oh God, foreshadowing for Sam. He carries two hobbits up that mountain. I can't carry that burden, but I can carry you. Yes, perfect. As Skeeper says, courage is being afraid, but facing danger anyway. And we might question here whether or not Sam is appropriately afraid. Yeah. I can carry enough for two, said Sam defiantly. So then we spend some time marshalling our ponies. We learn that Butterbur is, in the first instance, uh, left out of pocket. He pays a handsome sum, four times the price for Bill Fernie's somewhat emaciated, somewhat forlorn little pony, which stings all the more because he's giving this money to Bill Fernie. But then we also learn that Butterbur compensates Mary for the loss of his ponies because you guys, Barlamon Butterbur is a good man. He does what is right, even though it hurts him. And we're told explicitly in the text that 30 silver pennies is, even though Butterbur is wealthy by the standards of Brie, which is a lovely qualifier contained within that phrase, he's wealthy by the standards of Brie, but 30 silver pieces still stings. This is still a hard thing for him. And then we get another odd narrative tangent, because we learn that the ponies haven't been taken, certainly haven't been killed, they were just driven away, and they made their way back to Fatty Lumpkin, they made their way back to Tom Bombadil, who, upon hearing of the events in Bree, returned the ponies to Barlam and Butterbur. So in the end, Butterbur's virtue, his goodness, notably his civility, is rewarded. Bree might feel wild and weird to the hobbits, but it is still civilization though civilization of a more ragged sort than we're accustomed to in the Shire. Heroes and Bard says, Butterbur is growing on me through this reading. It took me 
I don't know, countless readings of The Lord of the Rings to really fully appreciate Barlaman Butterbur because his quiet virtue, I hesitate to call it heroism, but his quiet virtue generally takes place right on the edges of the frame. You really have to pay attention to what this guy is going through in order to fully appreciate him, of course, yes. And Heroes and Bard says, of course Tom comes across the ponies because they go back to Fatty Lumpkin. This is the natural order of things, yeah. Uh, yes, Karma calls out Lynn Litton. I think that's exactly what is going on here. Yes, good. Um, let me see here, make sure I'm not... Uh... <laughs> Emily says, the ponies do not get eaten at this time. I'm telling you this because you look scared. Good. I'm glad that we can break the narrative frame and just reassure our juvenile readers that, uh, that everything is okay here. Good. Good. Um, I do think that there's something more important happening there, though. It is an odd narrative tangent, but I think it serves to confirm for us that in this time and in this place, Brie is still civil, that the Western lands, that Eriador is to a certain extent still civil. The shadow is coming, but it has not reached us yet. The agents of Sauron move, and and the the weakness of man is already evident in the form of Bill Fernie and many others. You know his his associate from the south, for example. Um, the weakness of man is already evident, but men have not yet broken. It is not this day. We'll come back to that right at the end. Yeah, good. Um, Excellent. Let's keep pushing on then, because we have still so far to go. We venture east on the road and then set out north into the Midgewater Marshes. We set out into this horribly inhospitable territory where no one in their right mind would go, and thus is the perfect course for our heroes. This is our account as we move into the Midgewater. I'm being eaten alive, cried Pippin. Midgewater, there are more midges than water. What do they, li- what do they live on when they can't get hobbits, said Sam, scratching his neck. They spent a miserable day in the lonely and unpleasant country. Their camping place was damp, cold, and uncomfortable, and the biting insects would not let them sleep. There was also abominable creatures haunting the reeds and tussocks that from the sound of them were evil relatives of the cricket. There were thousands of them, and they squeaked all round, Nick, breek, breek, nick, unceasingly all the night until the hobbits were nearly frantic. The next day, the fourth was little better, and the night almost as comfortless. Though the Nickerbreakers, as Sam called them, had been left behind, the midges still pursued them. As Frodo lay, tired but unable to close his eyes, it seemed to him that far away there came a light in the eastern sky. It flashed and faded many times. It was not the dawn, for that was still some hours off. "'What is that light?' he said to Strider, who had risen, and was standing, gazing ahead into the night. "'I do not know,' Strider answered. "'It is too distant to make out. It is like lightning that leaps up from the hilltops.' Frodo lay down again, but for a long while he could still see the white flashes, and against them the tall, dark figure of Strider, standing silent and watchful. At last he passed into uneasy sleep. This is the night of October the 3rd slash October the 4th by this point, and that will be significant later. In fact, we'll get a little hint of its significance later in this chapter. But again, we're foreshadowing the Council of Elrond here and the final explanation of all that has happened. Um, Princess Ostrich says, I love that Tolkien doesn't give a shit about economy, but feels the need to explain Butterbur's economic situation after the incident. It is interesting that this is one of the few direct references we get to actual sums of money. We know, for example, that Frodo sold Bag End to the Sackville Bagginses for a modest sum but we don't know how much it actually was. I think, if recollection serves, this is our first mention of silver pieces as a actual functional economic currency, rather than silver pieces being, you know, coins of silver themselves. This seems to be more directly economic, more economic in the modern sense than that. So it is fascinating that we hear 
go to some lengths to preserve Butterbur's virtue and to account for, yes, this karmic justice as the horses are returned to him. The horses and the ponies are returned to him from, uh, from Tom. So here we travel through the marsh and we travel through the mire. And of course, Sam is the one to name the Nickerbreakers. He has never been this far. Remember, we are so very far away from Sam's experience, but still he names. And in that naming, and this is something that we'll get alluded to just a handful of times, just not even a full handful of times through the entire book. Sam names. And I think that that is significant. I think this is one of the hints of Tolkien's comprehension of the place of mortal man within the world, within the creation of Arda. Because Adam's first role in the Garden of Eden was to name. He was supposed to understand. He was supposed to perceive the nature of things and name them accordingly. And Sam here seems to be doing something similar. What else should he name these creatures that say Nick Breek Breek Nick all through the night, but Nickerbreakers? Plus, it has that entirely charming and somewhat parochial aspect of Hobbit language. But Sam, the resident of the garden, Sam, the gardener here, is moving through the world with a kind of innocence and also a kind of engagement which, well, speaks to his heroism, speaks to his Samness. Perhaps there isn't, yes, here, Gildarts Winter says with, with absolute clarity and precision, Sam doesn't name, he names things. Yes, very good, very good. When was the last time Strider slept, asks Jackie Boatman, and Heroes and Bards replies, 70 years, give or take. Well, it takes that long to learn all of this lore. We'll get some of that a little later. Um, Next slide. Next morning, they set out again soon after sunrise. There was a frost in the air, and the sky was a pale, clear blue. The hobbits felt refreshed, as if they had a night of unbroken sleep. Already they were getting used to much walking on short commons, shorter at any rate than what in the Shire they would have thought barely enough to keep them on their legs. Pippin declared that Frodo was looking twice the hobbit that he had been. Very odd, said Frodo, tightening his belt, considering that, there's, considering that there is actually a good deal less of me. I hope the thinning process does not go on indefinitely or I shall become a wraith. Do not speak of such things, said Strider quickly and with surprising earnestness. The hills drew nearer. They made an undulating ridge, often rising almost to a thousand feet, and here and there falling again to low clefts or passes leading into the eastern lands beyond. Already the crest of the ridge the hobbits could see, already, uh, excuse me, along the crest of the ridge, the hobbits could see what looked to be the, rem- the remains of green-grown walls and dikes, and in the clefts there still stood the ruins of old works of stone. By night they had reached the, fo- the feet of the western slopes, and there they camped. It was the night of the 5th of October, and they were six days out from Bree. Excuse me. That is my cell phone. I didn't silence it before starting the uh, before starting the seminar. That is terribly amateurish of me. I do apologize. There we go. Okay, it is now silenced, and we can progress. In the morning, they found for the first time since they had left the Chetwood a track plain to see. They turned right and followed it southwards. It ran cunningly, taking a line that had seemed chosen so as to keep as much hidden as possible from the view, both of the hilltops above and the flats to the west. It dived into dells and hugged steep banks, and where it passed over flatter and more open ground on either side of it, there were lines of large boulders and hewn stones that screened the travellers almost like a hedge. The most vital point here, of course, comes from Frodo's somewhat ill-judged, somewhat poorly chosen, and certainly foreshadowy comment here. Um, that uh, if the thinning process will not, I hope the thinning process will not go on indefinitely, or I shall become a wraith. Strider's earnestness, Aragorn's earnestness in this regard, not a great surprise given what we know and given what we will learn later in this chapter, and we will move further onward. 
with uh, due, uh, due perspicacity in that regard as, as we uh, try to understand finally what the Black Riders really are. What's also important here as we move from the Midgewater Marshes into the, the lee of the Weather Hills is that we are moving through the remnants of old conflicts. We are moving through old fortifications. We are moving through the ruins of old civilization. And that civilization, I mean, in a general sense, if this is your first time through The Lord of the Rings, that civilization simply gives us a sense of great antiquity, of great tragedy. This reminds us of the Barrow Dance. We're going to get a reference to Barrows very soon, as Mary is concerned that there will be more Barrows and presumably more Barrow Whites closer to Weathertop. There aren't. That was the burial ground. This is the frontier. The strategic position of Weathertop was crucial during the war between Arnor and Angmar. And though we don't know it, though we are given no sense of it here, it is certainly in Tolkien's mind as we approach Weathertop that that war was fought between the men of Arnor and the forces of the Witch King of Angmar, the leader of the Nazgul, the leader of the Black Riders. When later in this chapter, Frodo sees the Black Riders as they truly are and sees the crown on the head of their leader, that is what it is in reference to. That man, that wraith, that figure was the Witch King of Angmar, and he is the one who brought destruction across this entire land. He is the one who has torn down this civilization and scattered the people of Arnor to the winds. They are now the Dunedain. They are now the Rangers. Yes. Yes, as Danielle says, not only old civilization, but the civilization that is related to the Black Riders and Aragorn. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Okay, let me see here. Um... Good, and then we'll, we'll, let's get our reference to uh, to Gilgalad, and then we can take uh, then we can take a breath here in this this frantic progression through the chapter. Um, the hobbits gazed at Strider. It seemed that he was learned in old lore as well as the way as well as in the ways of the wild. Who was Gilgalad? Asked Mary. But Strider did not answer and seemed to be lost in thought. Suddenly, a low voice murmured. Gilgalad was an elven king of him the harpers sadly sing, the last whose realm was fair and free between the mountains and the sea. His sword was long, his lance was keen, his shining helm afar was seen, the countless stars of heaven's field were mirrored in his silver shield. But long ago he rode away, and where he dwelleth none can say, for into darkness fell his star, in Mordor where the shadows are. The others turned in amazement, for the voice was Sam's. We've seen Sam express poetic thought before, quasi-poetic thought, but here he quotes outright a translation of the ancient elven. And it's interesting detail here, too, that we see that Strider is surprised that Bilbo translated this poem, but he is not surprised that Bilbo translates poems. He knows, apparently, about Bilbo. This seems to suggest that he has met Bilbo in the past, that he is familiar with Bilbo. The hobbits themselves don't seem to notice that incidental detail as we move forward, though. But he is surprised that Bilbo translated this specific poem. We should note, too, that last line, in Mordor, where the shadows are does sound a little familiar, doesn't it? In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, it feels as though we're moving into the same poetic register, certainly, into the same kind of poetic form, but therefore moving into the same, I don't know, rhetorical register, into the same mythic register as that original poem. This is very strong stuff. Not only does he know his history, but he knows it in verse, says Heroes and Bards. Yes, very good. Very good. And damn, Sam, ominous, says Gildarts. Yes, absolutely right. Very, very ominous. Oh, Sam, of course Sam knows this, says Heroes and Bards. Um, Alan says, 
If that is the case, did Frodo's making light of wraiths lead to his stabbing? Uh, this is following along from Heroes and Bard's thought. Ring wraiths chasing you lets uh, ring wraiths chasing you lets hide out in a place with significance for their leader. Um, actually, I'm not sure that those two thoughts are connected. No, we're tracking here a comment from Emily. Words have power in Middle-earth. Looking ahead to the Council of Elrond, Gandalf speaks words and changes the weather. Not with magic, makes everything dark. Words are power. And let's remember when Gandalf quotes the inscription on the inside of the One Ring in the Council of Elrond and quotes it in the Black Tongue. Elrond is pretty upset at that point because no one speaks that language. It has an innate power. I don't think that Frodo calls out to it, but, uh, but does you know, suggest here perhaps an awareness of what is to come. Certainly, wraiths are in his mind at this point. That may be sufficient. Um, let me see here. Uh, Danielle is saying here that she has two kids, Arthur Aurelius Taliesin went and Luthien Aurora Neris went. Danielle, that is fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and Galad Rebecca says too on the subject of names, I love Gilgalad. Sounds like Galad Rebecca. Gilgalad Rebecca. I think you can revise your name now. Just add more, more, sim, uh, more uh, syllables there. Good, excellent. Yes, good. If Frodo does have a ring connection to the race, says Di, then it makes sense not to speak powerful words. They're listening. Yes, absolutely. They are always aware. Let's keep pushing on. I just realized that I didn't cancel that slide, but that's all right because we're moving on to the next slide. On the western flank of Weathertop, they found a sheltered hollow at the bottom of which there was a bowl-shaped dell with grassy sides. There they left Sam and Pippin with the pony and their packs and luggage. The other three went on. After half an hour's plodding climb, Strider reached the crown of the hill. Frodo and Mary followed, tired and breathless. The last slope had been steep and rocky. On the top they found, as Strider had said, a wide ring of ancient stonework, now crumbling or covered with age-long grass. But in the centre a cairn of broken stones had been piled. They were blackened as if with fire. About them the turf was burned to the roots, and all within the ring the grass was scorched and shriveled, as if flames had swept to the hilltop but there was no sign of any living thing. Standing upon the the rim of the ruined circle, they saw all round below them a wide prospect, for the most part of lands empty and featureless except for patches of woodland away to the south, beyond which they caught here and there the glint of distant water. Beneath them, on the southern side, there ran like a ribbon the old road, coming out of the west and winding up and down until it faded behind a ridge of dark land to the east. Nothing was moving on it. Following its line eastward with their eyes, they saw the mountains. The nearer foothills were brown and somber. Behind them stood taller shapes of grey, and behind these again were high white peaks glimmering among the clouds. "'Well, here we are,' said Mary, "'and very cheerless and uninviting it looks. There is no water and no shelter and no sign of Gandalf. But I don't blame him for not waiting, if he ever came here.' "'I wonder,' said Strider, looking round thoughtfully. "'Even if he was but a day or two behind us at Bree, he could have arrived here first. He can ride very swiftly when need presses.' We've talked before about the uh, about the way in which Tolkien sees the landscape, the way in which he understands the natural world, that he has a painter's eye. And there are, I think, fewer better examples of that than this description of the landscape all around Weathertop. You really get a sense of the vista presented to these three characters. The three characters, Strider, Pippin, uh, Strider, Mary, and Frodo, of course, having left Sam and Pippin in the dell below, the relative safety of the dell. And here, too, we see the fire-scorched ring of rock and cairn of Weathertop calling back our minds to the lights that Frodo saw high atop Weathertop uh, just a few nights ago. Um, yes, the ruins here. Tolkien's ability to summon forth um, a tragic 
sense, a grim and tragic sense from, uh, from the description of ruins is astonishing. He manages to do it again and again and again as we move through The Lord of the Rings, has already managed to do it back in the pages of The Hobbit. The forlorn, lamented aspect of ruination is something that is clearly very close to Tolkien's heart, something that, that really speaks to his understanding of Middle-earth, too, because Middle-earth is the realm of decline. It is the realm of tragedy. The greatest days are behind us in a very powerful sense, and these ruins stand testament to that. But here we're getting the mystery. We're getting the fire. We're getting the mystery of Gandalf's disappearance. We're getting a feeling of being alone and of being vulnerable here. We also get, immediately after this account, the discovery of the uh, the rune that, that Strider finds. The stroke on the left, he says, might be a G rune with thin branches. It might be a sign left by Gandalf, though one cannot be sure. I should say that they stood for G3. He's talking about the three vertical stretch, uh, scratches alongside the rune. And were a sign that Gandalf was here on October the 3rd. That is three days ago now. Excuse me. It would also show that he was in a hurry and danger was at hand so that he had no time or did not dare to write anything longer or plainer. If that is so, we must be wary. So we're getting the connection of Gandalf, Gandalf's presence here still looming, and we get the sense in which the hobbits are moving along the fringes of a larger story, that something more powerful is happening right now, something more important is happening right now, and the hobbits are moving quietly along the periphery, which is exactly where they should be. We'll get to that very soon, yeah. Good. Let's grab... um Let's take a look at the next slide here. Um, as we get an account of the Black Riders and what they're capable of. Can the riders see? Asked Mary. I mean, they seem usually to have used their noses rather than their eyes smelling for us, if smelling is the right word, at least in the daylight. But you made us lie down flat when you saw them down below, and now you talk of being seen if we move. I was too careless on the hilltop, answered Strider. I was very anxious to find some sign of Gandalf, but it was a mistake for three of us to go up and stand there so long. For the black horses can see, and the riders can use men and other creatures as spies as we found at Bree. They themselves do not see the world of light as we do, but our shapes cast shadows in their mind, which only the moon sun, the noon sun destroys, and in the dark they perceive many signs and forms that are hidden from us. Then they are most to be feared, and at all times they can smell the blood of living things, desiring it and hating it. Senses, too, there are other than sight or smell— we can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts as soon as we came here and before we saw them. They feel ours more keenly. Also, he said, he added, and his voice sank to a whisper, the ring draws them. Is there no escape then, said Frodo, looking round wildly. If I move, I shall be seen and hunted. If I stay, I shall draw them to me. Strider laid his hand on his shoulder. There is still hope, he said. You are not alone. Let us take this wood that is ready for the fire as a sign. There is little shelter or defense here, but fire shall serve for both. Sauron can put fire to his evil uses, as he can all things, but these riders do not love it and fear those who wield it. Fire is our friend in the wilderness. Maybe, muttered Sam. It's also as good a way of saying here we are as I can think of, bar shouting. They desire life, says Diam in the chat. Yes, they desire life. They want blood. They hate blood, desiring and hating it. This is by far the clearest account that we've had of the Black Riders so far. This is a better and keener understanding of what the Black Riders are, and we are not surprised at all, I think, that Strider understands them as well as he does. He knows his lore. The horses can see, but the riders don't see in the conventional sense. Rather, they 
sense the world around them. They can smell, they can smell blood, and they see the shadows cast by the living in all but the noonday sun. And in darkness, they can see more clearly still. We're going to explore this even more fully by the time that we get to the final movement of this chapter. But this is a disquieting thought. We also get here the sense that that their presence does trouble the heart, that they can spread fear even when their presence is unknown, that it follows with them like a cloud, like a, like a, a fearful miasma that surrounds them and moves with them. Strider suggests for the first time here, though, that they can sense the opposite, that they can sense life. And this might give us an insight into what kind of magic the Shire wields. If it is true, as Strider says, senses too there are other than sight or smell, we can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts as soon as we came here and before we saw them. They feel ours more keenly. If that is true, if they sense whatever the alternative is of, of trouble and disquiet when they are in the presence of life and vitality, then perhaps we can now begin to understand why it is that the Shire proved so difficult for them. Because they were being assailed on all sides constantly by an excess, by a great and glorious abundance of life and vitality. It must have been as though they were in the middle of a clamor constantly while they were in the Shire. They may have been additionally blinded, their senses shrouded, by the life that that permeates every part of the Shire, the joy that permeates every part of the Shire, the civility that permeates every part of the Shire. Yes. With Strider, as Jackie says, there is always hope. That is absolutely true. As he says, he lays his hand on his shoulder. There is still hope. You are not alone. Let us take this wood that is set ready for the fire as a sign. There's little shelter or defense here, but fire shall serve for both. Hey, yes, things look hopeless. But you are not alone, and we have fire. And the fire itself is going to be important, but that's not what Strider looks to. Rather, he looks to the provision of wood for the fire as a sign. This is proof that we can still defend ourselves, that there is still hope that we should continue to move forward. Yeah, good, good. Then we get to stories. And if I have been moving swiftly through this chapter, and I have, It is because I really wanted to get to the storytelling. As night fell and the light of the fire began to shine out brightly, he began to tell them tales to keep their minds from fear. He knew many histories and legends of long ago, of elves and men and the good and evil deeds of the elder days. They wondered how old he was and where he had learned all this lore. "'Tell us of Gilgalad,' said Mary suddenly, said Mary suddenly when he paused at the end of a story of the elf kingdoms. "'Do you know any more of that old lay that you spoke of?' I do indeed, answered Strider. So also does Frodo, for it concerns us closely. Merry and Pippin looked at Frodo, who was staring into the fire. I know only the little that Gandalf has told me, said Frodo, slowly. Gilgalad was the last of the great elf kings of Middle-earth. Gilgalad is starlight in their tongue. With Alandil, the elf friend, he went into the land of... No, said Strider, interrupting. I do not think that tale should be told now with the servants of the enemy at hand. If we win through to the house of Elrond, you may hear it there, told in full... Then tell us some other tale of the old days, begged Sam. A tale about the elves before the fading time. I would dearly like to hear more about the elves. This dark seems to press round so close. I will tell you the tale of Tenuviel, said Strider, in brief, for it is a long tale of which the end is not known, and there are none now except Elrond that remember it aright as it was told of old. It is a fair tale, though it is sad, as are all the tales of Middle-earth, and yet it may lift up your hearts. He was silent for some time, and then he began not to speak, 
but to chant softly. We'll look at Baron and Luthien again in just a moment. We'll look at the entirety of that poem, but first we have to frame this. As night fell and the light of the fire began to shine out brightly, he began to tell them tales to keep their minds from fear. Stories, stories can keep our minds from fear. That is crucial. And a brief note here, because it is often easy to lose track of of the detail here. They are not on the peak of Weathertop at this point. They are in the dell on the secluded side of Weathertop. So the fire is not as insane as it may sound. They are shrouded and protected. It is shining out brightly in the night, but it will not serve as a beacon across a great distance. They don't have to worry about being seen at this point. So... Strider is seeking to reassure the hobbits. He's seeking to keep their minds from fear. And he does so by, well, he knew many histories and legends of long ago of elves and men and the good and evil deeds of the elder days. The good and evil deeds of the elder days. He's not necessarily telling them happy stories. He's telling them history. He's telling them what really happened, or at least the legends of what really happened. And here we see, as we will again later in this slide, a perspective on something that is fundamental to our understanding of Tolkien. That fear and that evil and that grief and that tragedy and that loss are not evil. They are not, tales of these things are not a tool of darkness. They are not a tool of the enemy. They can offer solace. They can offer comfort. The tragedy from which beauty emerges we can think all the way back to, as we discussed earlier, the Aina Lindale and the Silmarillion. This is formative to our understanding of this world. Tragedy and sorrow and grief, these are beautiful and, and precious things. These are things to be treasured because they illuminate our understanding of the world. So Strider isn't seeking to distract the hobbits. He is seeking to actually restore them, actually replenish them. So Mary asks to be told of Gilgalad, and Strider throws the ball to Frodo there. Frodo begins to talk with Elendil, the elf friend he went to the land of. Nope. Nope. We're not going to tell that story. We're not going to tell that story, not here, not with agents of the enemy around, because it will presumably bestow them with extra power, more power. So instead, Strider moves to the story of Tenuviel, as he introduces it here, to the story of Baron and Luthien. Um... Although, actually, before we get to that, let, let's talk about Sam's line here. Then tell us some other tale of the old days, a tale about the elves before the fading time. I would dearly like to hear more about elves. Semicolon, the dark seems to press round so close. Even stories of the elves are illuminative. Even stories of the elves offer solace. We know that elf song does. We know that the company of elves is restorative. We know that going all the way back to the Trollolly elves in The Hobbit. We know that the presence and the song of elves is, is restorative to the soul. It is a balm for the soul. But here we learn that even stories of elves are restorative. And that may be simple psychology from Sam. He grew up loving stories of elves. But it may be, too, that there is a greater and subtler magic to the stories of elves, particularly before the, the fading time, as he puts it here, particularly before the beginning of the decline of elven society and culture in Middle-earth. And Strider thinks and says, well, I will tell you the tale of Tenuviel. In brief, for it is a long tale of which the end is not known, and there are none now except Elrond that remember it or write as it was told of old couple things that we want to... <laughs> Elf, sir, says Keeper in the YouTube chat. Excellent. I'm, I'm saddened that Sam doesn't actually say it outright, but he all but does. I think that's that's a legitimate Elf, sir, right there. Um, 
And Jackie says, Tolkien was a huge advocate of escapism in particular. That is one of the purposes of fiction. That is one of the purposes of fairy tales, as he describes in the uh, essay that we discussed in the very first session of There and Back Again on fairy stories. Escapism is nothing to be feared and certainly nothing to be condemned. It is not a negative thing itself. Why should the prisoner be limited to thoughts of bars and walls? Why shouldn't the prisoner prisoner here in the sense of someone who is imprisoned in the mortal frame. Why should the prisoner not seek a greater vista, a greater perspective? Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, Oh, Emily says, what is the relationship between stories and songs? Are all stories songs? Are only some stories made into song? Which ones and why? As Jackie anticipates me here in the YouTube chat, I think a lot of the older stories are songs because it makes them easier to pass along. Oral tradition-wise, yes. Most old stories would be set to a particular meter or would be formed in rhyming couplets simply because it would make them easier to remember in a preliterate society. So the idea of remembering, you know, 50 pages of prose is daunting. But remembering, you know, an epic saga that is formed in rhyming couplets where one couplet leads naturally on to the next, that is much more straightforward. So in the oral tradition, songs songs and stories were basically interchangeable. The song was simply the, the kind of the metrical and rhythmic form that the story took so that it could be more easily remembered and then passed on. But we have made a distinction here in the pages of The Lord of the Rings between prose and poetry. That prose is not musical, that prose is mundane, that prose is straightforward and businesslike in a way that poetry isn't. Prose lacks the evocative capability of good, compelling poetry, good, compelling songs. We've seen before that that spectrum with, with the prosiest of hobbits on one side and, as we speculated, perhaps Tom Bombadil on the furthest extreme to the, the opposite side there. Um, it is interesting here that well, we actually get two accounts here from from Aragorn. We get the song first, and then we get the uh, the prose account. Let's get into the song here. I have uh, insufficient time, I fear, to do this justice, but we'll do all that we can. The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbles tall and fair, and in the glade a light was seen of stars in shadow shimmering. Tenuvial was dancing there, to music of a pipe unseen, and light of stars was in her hair and in her raiment glimmering. Their baron came from mountains cold, and lost he wandered under leaves, and where the elven river rolled he walked alone and sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock leaves, and saw in wonder flowers of gold upon her mantle and her sleeves, and her hair like shadow following. Enchantment healed his weary feet, that over hills were doomed to roam, and forth he hastened, strong and fleet, and grasped at moonbeams glistening. Through woven woods in elven home she lightly fled on dancing feet, and left him lonely still to roam in the silent forest listening. He heard there oft the flying sound of feet as light as linden leaves, or music wailing underground in hidden hollows, quavering. Now withered lay the hemlock sheaves, and one by one with sighing sound, whispering fell the beechen leaves in the wintry woodland wavering. He sought her ever, wandering far, where leaves of years were thickly strewn, by light of moon and ray of star in frosty heavens shivering. Her mantle glinted in the moon, as on a hilltop high and far she danced, and at her feet was strewn a mist of silver quivering, 
When winter passed, she came again, and her song released the sudden spring, like rising lark and falling rain and melting water bubbling. He saw the elven flowers spring about her feet and healed again. He longed by her to dance and sing upon the grass untroubling. Again she fled, but swift he came. Tenuviel, Tenuviel, he called her by her elvish name, and there she halted, listening. One moment stood she, and a spell his voice laid his voice laid on her barren came, and doom fell on to Nuviel, that in his arms lay glistening. As Baron looked into her eyes within the shadows of her hair, the trembling starlight of the skies, he saw there mirrored shimmering to Nuviel the elven fair, immortal maiden, elven wise. About him cast her shadowy hair, and arms like silver glimmering. Long was the way that fate them bore o'er stony mountains cold and grey, through halls of iron and darkling door, and woods of nightshade marvellous. The sundering seas between them lay, and yet at last they met once more, and long ago they passed away in the forest singing sorrowless. This is one of the oldest things, a variation on one of the oldest things that Tolkien wrote. This version of the story of Baron and Luthien, which as I've discussed before, we'll, we'll kind of recap Baron and Luthien in just a moment. Uh, but this is one of the first things that Tolkien wrote. This is absolutely the keystone of his entire mythology, of his entire mythopoeic endeavor. This particular version is based most closely on a poem that he wrote called Light as Leaf on Linden Tree. Linden trees, by the way, are, uh, are uh, lime trees. So you can imagine those little lime leaves here. He wrote Light as a Leaf on Linden Tree in 1919 and 1920 and published it in 1925. So a long time before The Lord of the Rings. Here again, we see this recycled. Now, I want to talk, Jackie is quoting, in fact, my favorite line from this entire poem. One moment stood she and a spell his voice laid on her. Baron came and doom fell onto Nuviel that in his arms lay glistening. Stop, says Jackie, I can't even. And Diane says, just something in my eye. Um, yes, yes, just something in my eye and perhaps a little lump in the throat too. Um, I want to talk, we'll talk about Baron and Luthien specifically in just a moment, but I do want to recap, as I've said before, the real-life connection that Tolkien had with this particular story, with this conception. The idea of a mortal man finding an immortal maiden in the forest and falling immediately in love with her and pursuing her. This was very true to his real life. Um, I have here from the uh, Reader's Companion to The Lord of the Rings a letter written in 1972 from J.R.R. Tolkien to his son, Christopher. We should remember that Edith Tolkien died in 1971. J.R.R. Tolkien would die in 1973. So this is written in the year between his wife's death and his own death. He writes, I never called Edith Luthien, but she was the source of the story that in time became the chief part of the Silmarillion. It was first conceived in a small woodland glade filled with hemlocks at Roos in Yorkshire, where I was for a brief time in command of an outpost of the Humber garrison in 1917, and she was able to live with me for a while. In those days, her hair was raven, her skin clear, her eyes brighter than you have seen them, and she could sing and dance. But the story has gone crooked, and I am left after her death, and I cannot plead before the inexorable Mandos." This is, I mean, heartbreaking. This is true of Tolkien's personal experience, as I've said before, but for those of you who are joining us here in the 24th session of There and Back Again, when 
uh, Edith uh, Tolkien died, Tolkien inscribed upon her gravestone, Luthien, and when he died, his children inscribed upon his, Baron. This is the greatest love story, and it is a love story that, as I said, is the keystone, is the foundational rock upon which much of the Silmarillion is constructed. Certainly, it was Tolkien's entry point into this uh, into this this act of secondary creation. Um, but it is also directly relevant to the plot as it's unfolding now. We'll come back to that too. Strider paused, and uh, yes, uh, Danielle quotes Strider sighed and paused before he spoke again. Yes. Yes. And, and Jackie says, no, the professor talking about his wife is just heartbreaking. Yes. Yes. Um, it is very tough. That last line for those of you who, uh, okay, I'm going to read the last two lines again. In those days, her hair was raven, her skin clear, and her eyes brighter than you have seen them. And she could sing and dance and dance is given in italics. And the phrase and dance is offset with an M dash there. This is incredibly emotional. And there is something so powerful about the professor writing to his son the year after his mother died, you know, the year after Edith died and saying her hair was raven, her skin clear, her eyes brighter than you have seen them. She was something even before you were born. She was more than just mother to you. She was wife to me. She was this dancing figure in the woodland glade and it changed my life. And then he says, but the story has gone crooked and I am left after her death and I cannot plead before the inexorable Mandos. This is something that Tolkien did a great deal in his later years, using elements of his, his secondary creation as touchstones, as metaphors, particularly in his correspondence with his son. Mandos is the doomsman of the Valar. He is the person who preserves the halls wherein all the spirits of the departed, all the spirits of the dead, reside until judgment is laid upon them. For the elves, that usually means restoration to the world. They are brought back in bodily form for the human beings, for the men. It means passing on into whatever comes next. Baron was mortal, and Luthien was not. This is part of the great tragedy of their story, um, is that this is a love across a divide. And of course, most of you, I'm sure, have seen the Lord of the Rings movies, even if you haven't read the book, so you know what's coming, you guys. Turns out that Baron is not the only mortal man to love an immortal maiden, and that is not the only connection between Luthien and Arwen. We'll get to that, uh, uh, get to that later. Uh, Luthien's, um, uh, okay. So, to clarify, this is not a story in the sense that it is fictional. It is a legend in the sense that it is true. Baron and Luthien were within the frame of, of Tolkien's Middle-earth real. In fact, Aragorn is descended directly from Baron and Luthien, as all the kings of Numenor were. Similarly, in, in a different branch of the family that is so distant that we needn't be concerned by it, uh, Elrond and his daughter Arwen are also descended from Baron and Luthien in a, in a different branch of that family tree um, through the, the children of Arendel, who we're going to talk about very soon because I get to recite Arendel was a mariner to you as a part of the seminar, which is pretty much the greatest thing. That is probably my favorite poem in the entire uh, book. It's it's magnificent. Um, that is not to take anything away, though, from this version of, of uh, Baron and Luthien. Um, so Luthien is the daughter of King Thingol. She is through her father's line, an elf. But her mother was not an elf. Her mother is Melian, the Maya. If you remember our discussion previously about the uh, the kind of the orders of 
angelic beings which pre-existed the world, when uh, the world is created, when the universe is created in the Ainulindale, the greatest of these Ainur come down to Earth. They are the Valar. They are these demigod-like figures who we previously discussed. And they are accompanied by the Maya, lesser Ainur, but still very powerful. Um, and, and Melian is one such. She comes to Earth. She is an angelic being. And that is, is Luthien Teneville's mother. She is uh, also said to have been the fairest maiden who ever lived. Not who has lived to date, but who ever lived. Tolkien is very careful about absolute superlatives in that form. He uses that particular phrase twice, and he uses it, or, or with regard to two different people, I should say. The first person is Luthien Tenuvial, the second is Arwen, daughter of Elrond. We'll meet her very soon. Um, Luthien means literally, um, I just realized that my YouTube chat isn't scrolling. Oh, Melian is the best and so tragic, says Jackie. Uh, when we do the next um, little Q&A wrap-up where I can dive a little more deeply into the Silmarillion, we're going to talk about Thingol and Melian, let me tell you. Um, Luthien is a Sindarin Elvish word meaning daughter of flowers. Uh, Tenuviel comes from, from Quendian and means... It means nightingale, but it doesn't really mean nightingale. Like it is, Tenuviel is used as the name for nightingales, but what it actually means, literally, if you break it down into its constituent parts, is daughter of the twilight. So, daughter of flowers, daughter of the twilight, Luthien Tenuviel. I, I wish I could spend an hour just parsing this poem, guys. I really, really could. It is so beautiful. When Baron catches her attention, he pursues... Let me put the slide back up. I can't move on without talking about it just a little bit. I can't... Okay, so... Baron comes from mountains cold and lost he wandered under leaves and where the elven river rolled he walked alone and sorrowing. Baron is mortal. He is a man. He has been walking the earth now since, well, okay, I'm not even going to get into that. For complicated reasons, it is very difficult to be a human being in the world at this point in history. He is walking alone. He finds himself in elven forest. He's descended from the mountains into the forest and he's walking alone and there he sees he sees Tenuvial. He sees her dancing and is enchanted, and he pursues her, and she flees. She runs from him, though apparently somewhat playfully. The woven woods and elven home, she lightly fled on dancing feet and left him lonely still to roam in the silent forest listening. So she runs from him, and he pursues her, searches for her, and he searches for her for a long time, for a year through the winter. Look at the beginning of that second column there. Now withered lay the hemlock sheaves, and one by one with sighing sound whispering fell the beechen leaves in the, winty, in the wintry woodland wavering. He sought her ever wandering far, where leaves of years were thickly strewn by light of moon and ray of star and frosty heavens shivering. He's following her. He's desperate for her because this is his light. This is his... I don't know, a word large enough to encapsulate it. I don't, you know, as, as Jackie says, she's not afraid of Baron, not ever. No, this is not, she's not, um, she's not fleeing from fear, but she dances away. That is what she does. She is not concerned with him until, crucially, uh, let's look here at the bottom of the second column. Um, he saw the elven flowers spring about her feet and healed again. He longed by her to dance and sing upon the grass untroubling. Again she fled, but swift he came. Tenuviel, Tenuviel. He called her by her elvish name. And there she halted, listening. He calls out her name. He understands her name. He calls it Daughter of the Twilight. And she pauses. And that pause is enough. One moment stood she, and a spell his voice laid on her barren came, and doom fell on Tenuviel that in his arms lay glistening. 
As Baron looked into her eyes within the shadows of her hair, the trembling starlight of the skies, he saw their mirrored shimmering. Tenuviel, the elven fair, immortal maiden, elven wise, about him cast her shadowy hair and arms like silver glimmering. There is much more to the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, In fact, let me grab from my shelf to show you again here. Uh, Let me cancel that slide first. This is... Again, as I've said before, with heavy heart, probably the last book of the professor's work that we are ever going to get. This is basically a finished version of the entire myth of Baron and Luthien, because this is not the end of their story, let me tell you. This is not just a simple meet-cute. There's a lot more to come, and we will talk about Baron and Luthien in the weeks to come. I'm going to do a special session, probably a special live, maybe even a special live roundtable session talking about Baron and Luthien. Yeah. Um, he invokes her name, says Kildar Winters in capital letters. Yes, very very powerful. Good. Good. Um, Okay, so let's move on and and take a look because, yeah, I just burned through a lot of my time talking about that and I regret nothing. This is the account that we get. Strider sighed and paused before he spoke again. That is a song, he said, in the mode that is called Anthenath among the elves, but it is hard to render in our common speech, and this is but a rough echo of it. It tells of the meeting of Baron, son of Barahir and Luthien Tenuviel. Baron was a mortal man, and Luthien was the daughter of Thingol, a king of elves upon Middle-earth when the world was young. And she was the fairest maiden that has ever been among all the children of this world. As the stars above the mists of the northern lands was her loveliness, and in her face was a shining light. In those days the great enemy of whom Sauron of Mordor was but a servant dwelt in Angband in the north, and the elves of the west coming back to Middle-earth made war upon him to regain the Silmarils which he had stolen, and the fathers of men aided the elves. But the enemy was victorious, and Barahir was slain, and Baron, escaping through great peril, came over the mountains of terror into the hidden kingdom of Thingol in the forest of Naldareth. There he beheld Luthien singing and dancing in a glade beside the enchanted river Escalduin. And he named her Tenuviel, that is Nightingale in the language of old. Many sorrows befell them afterwards, and they were parted long. Tenuviel rescued Baron from the dungeons of Sauron, and together they passed through great dangers and cast down even the great enemy from his throne, and took from his iron crown one of the three Silmarils, brightest of all jewels, to be the bride, excuse me, to be the bride price of Luthien to Thingol, her father. Yet at the last, Baron was slain by the wolf that came from the gates of Angband, and he died in the arms of Tenuviel. But she chose mortality, and to die from the world, so that she might follow him. And it is sung that they met again beyond the sundering seas, and after a brief time walking alive once more in the green woods, together they passed long ago beyond the confines of this world. So it is that Luthien Tenuviel alone of the elf kindred has died indeed and left the world, and they have lost her whom they most loved." But from her the lineage of the elf lords of old descended among men. There live still those of whom Luthien was the foremother, and it is said that in her it is said that her line shall never fail. Elrond of Rivendell is of that king. For of Baron and Luthien excuse me, for of Baron and Luthien was born Dior Thingol's heir, and of him Elwing the White, whom Erendel wedded. He that sailed his ship out of the mists of the world into the seas of heaven with the Silmaril upon his brow, and of Erendel came the kings of Numenor, that is Western S. As Strider was speaking, they watched his strange, eager face dimly lit in the red glow of the wood fire. His eyes shone, and his voice was rich and deep. Above him was a black, starry sky. Suddenly, a pale light appeared over the crown of Weathertop behind him. The waxing moon was climbing slowly above the hill that overshadowed them, and the stars above the hilltop faded. 
this is... <laughs> I understand that this may seem dense, particularly if this is your first time through The Lord of the Rings. This is probably the part of The Lord of the Rings which reads most like The Silmarillion, and that's no accident at all. This is ancient history. This is the root of the world. We're dealing here with the battle against the great enemy. We're dealing with the greatest love story in all of Middle-earth. But we get the, the primary beats of the story, that finally... Baron is slain by the wolf that came from the gates of Angband, and he died in the arms of Tenuvial, but she chose mortality, and to die from the world so that she might follow him. And it is sung that they met again beyond the sundering seas, and after a brief time walking alive once more in the greenwoods, together they passed long ago beyond the confines of this world. This is the great tragedy of the elves. The elves are not, as I've said before, supernatural, in the sense that they are disconnected from the world. They are natural in the sense that they are fundamentally connected to the world. The elves are of Arda in a way that men are not. The destiny of man lies beyond the world. It lies somewhere greater, somewhere more sacred, arguably. But elves don't leave. They don't die. They don't go to an immortal reward, an eternal reward. They are bound to the world, all save Luthien. Luthien chose mortality. She chose to die so that she could venture into the unknown with Baron and not be alone. And so the world loved she who they loved most. And I'll remind you of that line from Tolkien's letter to his son Christopher, the year after his wife died, the year before he died. The story has gone crooked and I am left. I cannot plead before the inexorable Mandos. Tolkien cannot beg for mortality in the same way that Tenuviel did. He has to wait. It's pretty heartbreaking. Yes, Arendelle is the evening star, says Heroes and Bards here. We will definitely talk. Uh, yes, not so subtle on the symbolism at the end there, says Princess Ostrich. That's absolutely fair. Uh, yes, Arendelle the Mariner. Uh, mm, okay, you know what? We'll get to that because we're going to get the whole poem in the very near future. So we'll talk about Arendelle when we get there. What is perhaps most interesting? We get this account. Uh, Astrider was speaking. They watched his strange, eager face, dimly lit in the red glow of the wood fire. His eyes shone and his voice was rich and deep. Because Strider is talking about Elrond of Rivendell. Elrond of Rivendell is of that king. For of Baron and Luthien was born Dior Thingol's heir, and of him Elwing the White, whom Erendel wedded, and that sailed his ship out of the mists of the world into the seas of heaven. Da, 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 da. This is the, the cascade of, of, of greatness and heroism that springs forth from the love of Baron and Luthien. And Strider knows, Aragorn knows right now, that not only is Elrond of that king, Elrond brackets, and also his daughter Arwen, with whom I am in love. He's of that king, but also the kings of Numenor. That's Strider's line. That's Aragorn's line. He is descended of this great love too. And it is a great love that doesn't just exist in the past, but still casts its light across the world. So it is specifically relevant to Aragorn in this moment, and it is more generally relevant to Aragorn in this moment. He would not exist. He would not be himself if not for this love story. The woman that he loves would not exist if not for this love story. But the love itself, the sacrifice, the heroism, the recovery of the Silmarils, the defeat of the great evil, this is, this is the biggest story that there will be in the pages of the Silmarillion. This is it. This is... Not an origin story, not a creation myth, but it is a foundation myth for all that springs forth. Okay, 
Yes, as Jackie says, this is his genealogy and that of his beloved. Absolutely. Break my heart, says Elizabeth Stevens. Yes. Well, but this is the the tragedy. This is the the this is the quiet tragedy from which beauty is derived. This is the source of sorrow and of grief, but also of hope and of love. This is why I get so weary of critics of Tolkien who view his work as being a simple division between good and evil. Well, the good guys wear white and the bad guys wear black and everyone's one or the other and that's it. And that is such a superficial, trivial, nonsensical reading of Tolkien that it frustrates me to no end. Because hope is tragic and beauty is tragic and things that are great are fleeting and things that endure are oftentimes not and not great i mean not fleeting i got tangled in my own syntax there i apologize um the tears of of you know okay <laughs> i'm just not realizing that i'm running out of time and we still have a little hey we have a small matter to attend to here at the end of the chapter we will talk about this if you have questions about the nature of grief and sadness and the ways in which they are connected fundamentally to uh to tolkien's view of the world then get in touch i i definitely need to do another q a session probably around the end of the fellowship of the ring next week we're going to cover chapter 12 that is a around the end of the fellowship what i meant to say was the end of book one next week we cover chapter 12 that is the end of book one then i might take a week and do an extra q a session before we move into book two okay that will do it and the elves will always mourn her says jackie it is oh this is this is the sadness yes good Emily says, be right back, putting this book on hold at the library real quick. Do that thing. Let me know when you've read it and we'll all uh, get together to discuss it together. Okay. Here, though, things take a turn because the Black Riders attack. They are warded by the fire for a while. And more importantly, it may seem warded by the story of Baron and Luthien, warded by Strider's recitation of of the the song, the the chant that he gives, and then his account of the story, they don't attack while he's singing. They attack afterward. And it may well be that the magic of Baron and Luthien, the enchantment of Baron and Luthien, holds this evil at bay for a while longer, too. But they attack. And when they do, things break bad. Terror overcame Pippin and Mary, and they threw themselves flat on the ground. Sam shrank to Frodo's side. Frodo was hardly less terrified than his companions. He was quaking as if he was bitter cold, but his terror was swallowed up in the sudden temptation to put on the ring. The desire to do this laid hold of him, laid hold of him and he could think of nothing else. He did not forget the barrow, nor the message of Gandalf, but something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings, and he longed to yield, not with the hope of escape or of doing anything, either good or bad. He simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger. He could not speak. He felt Sam looking at him, as if he knew that his master was in some great trouble, but he could not turn towards him. He shut his eyes and struggled for a while, but resistance became unbearable. And at last he slowly drew out the chain and slipped the ring on the forefinger of his left hand. Immediately, though everything else remained as before, dim and dark, the shapes became terribly clear. He was able to see beneath their black wrappings. There were five tall figures, two standing on the lip of the dell, three advancing. In their white faces burned keen and merciless eyes. Under their mantles were long gray robes. Under the, Upon their gray hairs were helms of silver. In their haggard hands were swords of steel. Their eyes fell on him and pierced him as they rushed toward him. Desperate, he drew his own sword. 
and it seemed to him that it flickered red as if it were a firebrand. Two of the figures halted. The third was taller than the other. His hair was long and gleaming, and on his helm was a crown. In one hand he held a long sword, and in the other a knife. Both the knife and the hand that held it glowed with a pale light. He sprang forward and bore down on Frodo. At that moment, Frodo threw himself forward on the ground, and he heard himself crying aloud, "'O Elbereth! Gilthoniel!' At the same time, he struck at the feet of his enemy. A shrill cry rang out in the night, and he felt a pain like a dart of poisoned ice pierce his left shoulder. Even as he swooned, he caught, as through a swirling mist, a glimpse of Strider leaping out of the darkness with a flaming brand of wood in either hand. But the last effort, Frodo, dropping his sword, slipped the ring from his finger and closed his right hand tight upon it. So much that we have to cover here. So much. As Johnny says here in the chat, shapes became terribly clear. What a good word choice. Yes, isn't it? Isn't that perfect? So everyone is afraid, and Frodo immediately falls under the influence of the ring. But we must note a subtle distinction here, and the narrator calls our attention to it. The desire to do this laid hold of him, and he could think of nothing else. He did not forget the barrow, nor the message of Gandalf, but something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings, and he longed to yield, not with the hope of escape, or of doing anything either good or bad. He simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger. Previously, when we've seen the ring interact with Frodo, when we've seen him fall under the influence, fall under the sway of the ring, it has been manipulative. It has been insidious. Hey, you're still in the Shire and Bilbo used the ring and Gandalf doesn't know what he's talking about. It's going to be fine. Put on the ring and you can get away from the Black Rider. Put on the ring and you'll be safe. Put on the ring and you can get away from the Barrow Whites. All of these justifications, all of these insinuations fall away here. He has no hope of escape or of doing anything, not even put on the ring and use me. Put on the ring and wield my power to defeat this foe. There isn't even that thought, which we know the ring can, can wield. We know the ring can be manipulative in that sense too, because it has done it before. But here there is none of that. Here there is the hammer blow of put on the ring. That is it. It is blunt and it is brutal and it is merciless. And Frodo struggles. He still struggles but he buckles eventually. He shut his eyes and struggled for a while, but his resistance became unbearable. And at last he slowly drew out the ring. He slowly drew out the chain, rather. He's slowly drawing it out. Even here, even with the hammer blow of insistence, presumably the influence of the ring, presumably the influence of the wraiths, presumably the influence of the witch king of Angmar himself, Frodo still fights. He is still resistant to it. I have no doubt that a man bearing the ring at this point, Isildur himself bearing the ring at this point, would have put it on in a heartbeat, that he would never have resisted this long. A dwarf may have stood for a moment, an elf may have stood for a moment, but hobbits are made of sterner stuff. And here Frodo manages to resist an admirable amount of time, even though in the end the ring claims him. Immediately, though, everything else remained as before, dim and dark, the shapes became terribly clear. He's able to perceive these figures as they truly are, not the Black Riders, but the Ringwraiths, the Nazgul, the nine kings of men who were, or in this instance, five kings of men who were given these gifts by Sauron and fell into corruption because of it. But still, they are powerful. And they 
vitally, importantly, see him. Their eyes fell on him and pierced him as they rushed towards him. Why is Frodo compelled to put on the ring? Because it is a here I am sign. It is like igniting a neon sign above his head. Hey, ring bearer, right here, come and get me. This is why Frodo is is brutally coerced into putting on the ring right at the beginning of this passage. So they rush toward him, but two of them hold back. Two two of the figures fault it because Frodo draws his own sword. Even here, under the influence of the ring, he still has a measure of resistance. So he draws his sword, which is the knife taken from the barrow, crafted by ancient smiths to fight this dude to fight against the Witch King of Angmar and his forces. There is an enchantment laid upon this blade. It isn't an enchantment like Orchrist or even like Sting, but it is an enchantment nonetheless, and it causes two of the Nazgul to falter, and only the Witch King steps forward. He springs forward and bears down on Frodo. At that moment, Frodo threw himself forward on the ground. He cries out, O Elbereth Gilthoniel, and he attacks And we will learn later that this is crucial, that Frodo's decision to throw himself forward, to strike at his foe in ineffective hobbitish fashion. I mean, let's be clear here. Frodo is not saving the day at the end of this passage. He is not about to defeat the the leader of the Nazgul in in one-on-one combat and then, you know, drive them off into the night. Strider seems to be having more luck and he's holding, you know, a flaming stick. He's holding a fiery brand as he attacks the Nazgul and tries to drive them back. But it doesn't matter whether or not Frodo is successful. Frodo is courageous, inspired by O Elbereth Gilthoniel. Elbereth, the queen of the elves in ancient times. Her name means star queen. Here is calling, and of course we heard Elbereth Gilthoniel in the mouths of, of Gildor and the other elves earlier in the book. This is a powerful totem. This is a powerful invocation from Frodo. But what really counts is that he hurls himself forward. This is, uh, hurls himself forward both in the act of striking and in the metaphorical, uh, you know, hurling forward of, of his, his utterance here, of his oath here. Oh, Elbereth, Gilthoniel. Frodo is taking the fight to the Nazgul, to these beings of impossible power. He is, oh, as Lynn says in the YouTube chat, perfectly anticipating the next word I was going to use, he is defiant. It's perfect. As Jackie says, Frodo breaks through the spell of the ring and takes action. And we must note there right at the end. With the last effort, Frodo, dropping his sword, slipped the ring from his finger and closed his right hand tight upon it. So he drops his sword, which he is holding in his right hand, and closes his right hand over the ring instead, but he takes it off. Crucially, he takes it off. Why does he remove it at this point? Is there a spell created by the Nazgul, the the put-on-the-ring hammer blow of motivation? Is that caused by the Nazgul and for a moment the spell is broken? Or is this the ring's insistence that it be worn and it's been broken by something else? Is it possible that the ring's insistence has been broken by the utterance, O Albareth Gilthoniel, this cry of rebellion, this cry of defiance? Yeah. Uh, note says Jackie he was stabbed in the back not the chest yes let's uh, at the same time he struck the feet of his enemy a shrill cry rang out in the night and he felt a pain like a dart of poisoned ice pierce his left shoulder 
Yes, not not in the middle of his back, but yes, he is he is fallen at this point, and he is pierced from above. So it is almost certainly in the back that the the strike comes, not in the chest, or I guess still the shoulder. Technically, you know, Peter Jackson just made it a frontal attack instead of a a rearward attack. Yes, damn backstabbing race says heroes and bards. Yes, good, good, <laughs> excellent, excellent. And that, you guys, is going to do it. What a magnificent chapter. This is is so good. Yes, and Princess Ostrich clarifies here because ice in the shoulder is not enough. No, it has to be poisoned ice. This is one of those particular metaphors that Tolkien uses and expects us to follow along with. You know, like poisoned ice. Imagine if it was like poisoned ice. It's like that. You know how you've been poisoned by ice? You know, the impalement of a spike in your shoulder? It's fine. Poisoned ice. Let's call up the next session here as we wrap up. I'm a little over time. Our next session, The Fellowship of the Ring, Chapter 12, Flight to the Ford. That is 9 p.m. Eastern next Thursday, July the 20th, 2017. An evening session next week as we finish up Book 1 of The Fellowship of the Ring. Frodo, wounded by the blade of the Nazgul, has to fly to the Ford, uh, to the ford of Bruinen and rescue. We'll see how that plays out for him. Guys, thank you all so much for joining me here. If you've enjoyed this session, if you've enjoyed all of the sessions that we've shared here on There and Back Again, 24 of them now, that this one is in the can, 24 sessions of There and Back Again, please tell a friend, please spread the word, please you know, let other people know that we're having this discussion and invite them to join us, invite them to hang out with us. And if you are interested in taking part in a roundtable, if you would like to appear on camera, that's kind of one of the requirements. I can do voice, but that's a little more complicated too. But if you would like to take part in a Google Hangout, video chat with me and broadcast that entire chat live to the There and Back Again audience, please get in touch and let me know. You can email me, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. Uh, whether this is your first time through The Lord of the Rings or your 50th time through The Lord of the Rings, get in touch. I think I'm probably going to do one of these in a couple of weeks, maybe pair this with a brief lecture on Baron and Luthien with some of the deeper, you know, uh, we wanted to talk about Thingol and Malian, so we can talk about that too. Um, there's just a lot to discuss. If you're interested in appearing in there, let me know. Get in touch. And we'll probably do some kind of dry run before we go live with it and figure out all the technical stuff, guys. You know, technical dragons must be slain. That is why we have technical dragons. All right, that is going to do it. Thank you all so, so much for being here. I will talk to you all again next week. Until then, take care. Take care.